Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our featured advertiser, Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident hemophilia patient, and this is episode 20 of the Global Hemophilia Report. Today's topic, mild hemophilia A. A misnomer? People with mild hemophilia A do not usually or often bleed spontaneously. That's why perhaps it is apt to call the condition mild, though the term specifically refers to the amount of clotting factor 8 circulating in the body. People with mild hemophilia A can and do experience difficulties in controlling bleeding after an injury or surgery, and I've many times heard accounts from patients along the lines of, oh, well, I'm mild, but I bleed like a severe. So perhaps mild hemophilia is simply an unsuitable name, but what do the experts have to say? And what are the key characteristics that distinguish mild hemophilia from moderate or severe? We find out from our expert panel right after this. Sanofi seeks to break barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. Being in middle school is not easy. And being a teenager is definitely not easy. When Cecilia turned 13, she started her periods, just like any other young girl, and was excited and irritated at the same time, just like any other young girl. But then, unlike any other young girl, the bleeding would not stop on its own. Cecilia's mom took her to the doctor. The doctor did a physical exam, advised some blood work, and then some more blood work. And then today, the doctor told Cecilia's mom that Cecilia had mild hemophilia A. Cecilia's mom couldn't believe her ears. She had never missed any doctor's appointment for Cecilia. How did the doctor not catch this before? And how could it be true? Cecilia's mom remembered her college biology course. Hemophilia is a disease that affects men only, isn't it? And wouldn't the doctor have known about it when Cecilia was younger? No one in their family had hemophilia. How is this possible, she wondered. Although hemophilia is rare among girls and women, Cecilia is not alone. Previously, scientists thought that women can only be carriers of hemophilia, but today we know that about 16% of patients with mild hemophilia A are women. And even so-called mild hemophilia can affect their reproductive health. And men with, so to speak, mild hemophilia also experience bleeding episodes leading to long-term and permanent consequences. There is much to discuss with our panel of experts. Let's get introduced to them. Yes, hello everybody. My name is Karin Fijn van der Raad. I'm a professor of pediatric hematology at Amsterdam University Hospital and also the director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center in Amsterdam. Hello everyone, I'm Maria-Elisa Mancuso, I'm an hematologist. I take care of patients with inherited bleeding disorder and acquired bleeding disorder at the Center for Thrombosis and Hemorrhagic Diseases at Humanitas Research Hospital in Milan, Italy. And my name is Michael Recht. I am a pediatric hematologist. Currently, I am the chief medical and scientific officer at the National Hemophilia Foundation in the United States. As well, I am a professor of clinical pediatrics at Yale University School of Medicine, where I see uh, children and adolescents, young adults, adults with inherited and acquired bleeding and clotting disorders. I'm Vaughn Ripley, and I'm an inspirational speaker in the hemophilia community. We found out when I was a baby, when I was born and my umbilical cord fell off, the bleeding basically told doctors that there was a problem. The interesting thing was, because it's mild hemophilia in our family, we had several older uncles and things like that that either had issues or even a few that died young, and nobody knew why. So I was kind of the first one in our family to really diagnose the family having mild hemophilia. 
I think initially it was really tough growing up, obviously, as a boy and everything and wanting to wrestle and do all the things, soccer, football, baseball, basketball, and those things were, that wasn't allowed because in my generation with hemophilia, you didn't play any contact sports. And so from that perspective, in the beginning, it was pretty tough for me. But honestly, I feel like it flip-flopped for me as I got older and it actually became empowering because not only had it started out by showing me my limitations, but then I was able to turn it around and realize that I had so much more potential that I wasn't thinking about or tapping into. And hemophilia has broadened my horizons for that. Vaughn's story sets a great stage for today's discussion. We dive into the details of mild hemophilia A right after this quick word. Hemophilia A and B are both bleeding disorders. However, they have their own unique pathologies and clinical features, which makes them inherently different. Preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to the distinct behavior of factor IX, multiple pharmacokinetic or PK parameters should be considered when assessing the treatment and management of hemophilia B. So what does this mean for people with hemophilia? Visit the bigger picture in hemeb.com to see how a broader view of PK may influence hemophilia B treatment. That's the bigger picture in hemb.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. Welcome back. Vaughn, let's pick back up with you. Could you share with us how your diagnosis first affected you? Initially, doctors and uh, friends and family and everything, it was kind of like, and I still get it in the community actually, oh, you're just a mild hemophiliac. And the funny thing is, mild or not, I still have bleeding issues. I still have all kinds of problems. And unfortunately, when I was younger, because of that sort of mentality, they didn't check up on me, and so a few of my bleeds went on for weeks, even months with one of my knee bleeds, and I ended up having permanent damage to my knee because I had mild hemophilia and they weren't overly concerned about it and weren't really paying much attention. Just elevate it, put ice on it, don't worry about it. They weren't thinking about medical treatment like they were for some of the, the boys who were moderate, but definitely impacted me from that perspective. Indeed, not receiving timely treatment can have long-term consequences. Now let's talk about defining mild hemophilia A. What is the current definition of mild hemophilia A and the variability according to the World Federation of Hemophilia in terms of the representation of mild hemophilia A? According to the more, most recent ISTH definition in the frame of the standardization subcommittee, we identify as mild patients those with a residual factor uh, level be comprised between 6 and 40 uh, units per ml. Uh, of course, this is a quite wide range uh, of uh, values, and maybe this is also related to the fact that in the past we focused much more on severe and moderate, and we just uh, uh, put together a group of patients considered mild as per definition or looking at the natural model, even though uh, I think we should, uh, nowadays we have uh, much more knowledge and maybe more, uh, we are more sensitive to the fact that uh, this wide range include very different patient population in terms of group groups of with different bleeding phenotype. And uh, this is also related to the fact that uh, a patient, you, we know that factor eight levels may fluctuate uh, over life or even in the presence of different challenges like stress or inflammation, pregnancy in women. And uh, based on the residual level at baseline, these levels may go up uh, to levels that may stay within the normal range or remain in the mild range, giving a justification for very different bleeding phenotype. Whether, that is to say that patient may be starting with a baseline of 6%, whichever is the, incre the potential increase, they will never go within the normal range. Uh, on the other side, if you have someone starting from 20 to 25, he may even go into the normal range. 
So, I mean, this is a very broad definition, maybe traditionally linked to the fact that uh, the, the major clinical needs in the past were those of severe and moderate patients, and somehow we tended to group all the, all the rest who were not bleeding in a clinical evident way so frequently as the severe in a single group. But maybe nowadays it's time also to go in de in, into depth in the definition and maybe in the real bleeding phenotype of uh, this group of patients. Uh, what I would like to add is that in the SSC definition also uh, patients with factor levels above 40 are considered to be potential mild hemophilia patients when they do have a DNA mutation in the factor A gene that occurs in less than 1% of the population. Um, but this is a very small group, uh, I guess. And of course, it's important to indicate that in the group of mild hemophilia patients, there are both male patients and female patients who were previously called carriers, but uh, well, they are, when their factor eight levels are so low, they are mild hemophilia patients in themselves, I think. You know, I think historically that the classification of hemophilia based on baseline factor level makes a lot of sense, right? That if you're less than 1%, you have a risk of spontaneous bleeding. If you're moderate and you're between 1% and 5%, maybe you'll bleed, maybe you won't bleed. And if you're uh, above 5%, probably aren't going to bleed without some sort of medical, uh, surgical, insult, trauma. But in the real world, that classification really doesn't work. And, you know, if you talk to hematologists and say, tell me over the past 10 years who have been uh, the most difficult bleeding episodes to control, many times that's our mild hemophilia patients because sometimes they forget they have hemophilia and they present so late that the bleeding complication or the complication from a bleeding episode is harder to get under control. So, you know, the good part is it's easy to teach. It's easy, you know, to test someone who's in medical school, what's this person's uh, hemophilia uh, severity. But the, when you're actually a practicing hematologist, that baseline level and mild, moderate, and severe are not as clear cut as we were taught. Hearing these definitions, a question pops up. Is it possible that mild hemophilia A goes unrecognized a large percentage of the time? Yeah. Already Mike touched upon this. I mean, it may happen that the one with the mild somehow may have severe, very severe bleed in the end because they are unrecognized. And maybe because, you know, they come up with a diagnosis in a very challenging, challenging situation. I mean, we can still do diagnosis over 50, 50 years of age for someone who never had hemostatic challenges and suddenly is in the operating room for any problem that may and start bleeding. So in the end, you know, the under recognition is something related to bleeding complication in a way. But I think also something that was embedded in what he was saying is that, and it's very interesting to me, is that more and more that now we have more therapeutic tools for those patients. We can now, if you go through the literature and also to the clinical experience, we, are, we have a group of patients with mild hemophilia that they are using already prophylaxis. And this is not really stated, let's say, in the guidelines yet, or at least in the last guidelines, we can, say, we can see that much more focus is on bleeding phenotype rather than residual plasma levels. And if you look at the literature in the end, those who have a baseline between 6 to 10% on average, they, they, have, they need prophylaxis and they are doing prophylaxis. So in a way, maybe we should, we should move the cutoff or the level to, or at least identify different group of mild patients within the big group identified. I see. What are some of the other barriers to an accurate diagnosis of mild hemophilia A? In diagnosing mild hemophilia, you should always take into account that the uh, factor levels can um, increase due to stress. And of course, taking blood is a stressful event. 
So in children, for instance, um, it can be um, increased the factor, the basic factor eight level by the stress of the venipuncture. Therefore, it's important to repeat the testing. And we have two uh, tests, two, uh, two type of tests to measure factor levels, the chromogenic and the one-stage uh, assay. And it has been described that um, in uh, one-third of the patients, uh, there could be a discrepancy between the one-stage assay and the chromogenic assay. And this is most likely due to laboratory factors, uh, because we recently, in April, we published a paper where we uh, studied uh, 230 persons, 175 with hemophilia A and 45 with hemophilia B, all with mild hemophilia. And only in um, two of the hemophilia A patients did we find a essay discrepancy when we measured it in a central lab, in one lab for all the people. And uh, despite the fact that we had uh, 13 persons in this cohort who carried previously reported discrepant mutations. So this explains where this discrepancy comes from. I think it comes mainly from the, the lab essay, but still it depends on the lab essay used in a specific laboratory. And therefore it's very important to test everybody both with the one stage and the chromogenic assay because one of them can give a normal result and then you can miss the diagnosis. And um, another aspect, I already mentioned the stress of the venipuncture that can raise the factor level. Uh, it's also known uh, in women that during pregnancy um, factor levels uh, can also uh, be increased in the second half of the pregnancy. So um, there also you can get spuriously high, higher results than the baseline factor. So all these factors should be taken into account when interpreting the factor levels. Could you elaborate on the discrepancies in the assays and how that leads to challenges in both the diagnosis and in your approach? I think we have to differentiate between resource-rich countries and countries that don't have uh, quite as many resources. Um, I uh, just had a discussion with one of my colleagues at the National Hemophilia Foundation. She was in an Eastern European country uh, to do a twinning uh, exercise and went to the hospital in the city where the hemophilia treatment center was. They took her into the lab and that lab was filled with the most modern machines um, that were available to measure uh, factor levels to do and do coagulation testing, but they had no reagents. So the machines were still wrapped in plastic from over two years after delivery. So we have to remember that even though you can buy the hardware, buying the reagents is often the limiting step. Then even in resource-rich countries, the pre-analytic variables that go into getting valid and reliable factor levels, particularly in the um, mild to moderate range, are very important. Um, how that specimen is handled, how quickly it is spun and frozen, um, how the you know how controlled that frozen plasma is before it's thawed out for the actual uh, assay all can play a role in uh, the result that occurs when when uh, plasma is assayed, and then particular to the U.S. where we have this goofy health insurance system where a health, where you know someone can come and see me at Yale but I can't use Yale's lab that I know we've controlled all the pre-analytic variables that I know what reagents we use I know what machines we use I work with the pathologist to ensure everything is consistent sometimes I have to send a patient to an outside of phlebotomy in laboratory and then their sample gets shipped across the country and you know when it's uh uh, 45 degrees Celsius, 110, you have no idea on how um, the quality of that sample by the time it reaches the lab. I think I would add that uh, also we should take into account differential diagnosis and uh, here Bombillebrand disease comes in, in its mild form because, uh, you know, considering 
if I consider a not a specialized lab or not specialized hospital, of course, maybe they can come up with a factor eight level, but the vast majority, they have no test to test von Willebrand factor levels. And the other point to me, very important, and of course, this comes into the fact that in some situation, you have no specialized lab to define uh, between hemophilia A and von Willebrand disease. And the other point for, to me covers hemophilia B, because especially with mild hemophilia B and the diagnosis in very young children, in neonates, uh, also it's uh, deserved to be underlined that a mild hemophilia child could resemble a severe at, at time of birth. Uh, so that's why when you have a family history of hemophilia, it's always important to repeat the measurement of factor 9 at variance of what we do with factor 8. In the end, factor 8 is the same. The level at, at birth is a diagnostic level, which is different in hemophilia B. So you may have much lower levels in a neonate, so you need to confirm at least after 8 to 9 months when the liver is completely mature and able to synthesize the, the protein, and so to be sure to define well the, the, the diagnosis of, uh, of hemophilia. Uh, with the issue of chromogenic versus one stage, I would say that indeed lab and reagents are very important, but I think we have a biological explanation for some of those mutations in discrepant patient. Because the real discrepancy always, I always have to remind myself that we define a discrepancy when the ratio is 0.5 or 2. So the ratio should be really different. So the difference between the two dosages and one usually is in the normal range and the other one is a pathological one. And because some mutation are related to the time of activation of factor 9 from factor 8. So the, the, the time to the reaction of the clotting, uh, cas the coagulation cascade is in there. And since the two, the two lab assays, so the one stage has a prolonged time of incubation, so there is, let's say, more time for factor 8 to be active on the tenase complex, while in the chromogenic assay, the reaction is much faster. So if the, the mutation affects a site of a binding site uh, of, um, with factor 9 that need time to activate the system, maybe the chromogenic will, will be normal and the one stage will be prolonged. So there is a, for some mutation, there is a biological plausibility to have a discrepancy related to the type of mutation. So I do think that the, the truth is in the middle. So there is a discrepancy related to the lab, but there is also a discrepancy related to the type of mutation present in that given factor eight molecule. Indeed. As Dr. Mancuso paints the picture, it's easy to see how these discrepancies make accurate diagnosis difficult. What are the types of bleeding symptoms that you see with a person who has mild hemophilia A, and do they differ based on biological sex? I think we're seeing many more people present with mucosal bleeding as opposed to muscle and joint bleeding. Uh, uh, a ruptured frenulum is a not uncommon presentation for someone with mild hemophilia because they really haven't been... Uh, hemostatically challenged until they're up and running around and falling and hitting their mouth for the first time. Uh, bleeding into the muscles with vaccinations is not an uncommon presentation for someone with uh, mild hemophilia. Um, and then, you know, you, you asked the difference between genders. Obviously, uh, young women with mild hemophilia are going to more likely present uh, at menarche. Um, it's such a fraught time where it's so common to have um, irregular bleeding and sometimes heavy, sometimes no bleeding at all. The first occurrence of menstruation by itself can be a difficult transition for some, and receiving a diagnosis of hemophilia at the same time can only add to the stress. We will continue to talk about biological differences and clinical presentations in Mild Hemophilia A right after this quick break. 
preclinical studies have shown that after infusion, individuals have three times more factor IX in the extravascular space than they do in the bloodstream. Due to this distinct behavior, trough alone may not provide a full picture of factor IX activity and should be one of multiple ways we measure factor in the body. It's time to look at the bigger picture to see why a more complete assessment of pharmacokinetic or PK parameters is important. Visit thebiggerpictureinhemeb.com to learn how multiple PK parameters can play a role in hemophilia B treatment and management. That's thebiggerpictureinhemeb.com. This site is intended for US HCPs only. Welcome back. Before the break, our experts defined mild hemophilia. They shared their approach towards diagnosing it even when there are discrepancies in assays and we were just discussing differences based on gender. Dr. Karen, would you care to elaborate on the symptoms that you see? Another very important type of bleeding with a lot of morbidity is intracranial bleeding uh, postpartum. And this is really a very difficult problem because there is a large difference between families or pregnant women who know that they have a family history of mild hemophilia and those who are not aware. And lots of women are not aware of their family history for, of mild hemophilia because it's not talked about in the family. It's a taboo, it's difficult. I see everybody nodding, so we all recognize this. And this is really causing a lot of morbidity because then forceps or vacuum extraction is done during labor. And we all know that there's a risk of, of this kind of intervention for intracranial bleeding, especially in hemophilia children, babies. And this risk is quite considerable also in mild hemophilia. So this brings me also to answer your question about comprehensive care for mild hemophilia. I would really like to st state and stress that it's very important to do a pedigree analysis once a patient is diagnosed to identify any females who are potential carriers and to offer them at least the possibility of counseling, although this can be a sensitive issue in families. And regarding the comprehensive care, I think it's very important that patients are educated and receive the, all the information that they need or the patient or the parent when to phone the hospital, what, are the, what can be the signs of a bleeding and especially in what kind of emergency situations they can get the care they need quickly and adequately. Because you hear from patient organizations frequently that patients feel not well equipped and they feel like being treated, yeah, you're only a mild one compared to the severes. But for them, it feels very severe because then when something unexpected happens, the child falls on his head or there is a an accident or a trauma, they may not feel so well instructed about what to do. So we have to really discuss a lot about this and really take care that, that everybody feels competent to know what to do when something unexpected happens and when to contact the center, how the center can be reached 24 seven, and it's difficult because sometimes patients like to forget that they have this disease. And we each year in our tiny country in the Netherlands, we have some patients who goes to a hospital for surgery and doesn't tell the surgeon he has hemophilia. And then he starts bleeding and with the ambulance, he has to be brought very quickly to our hospital. And yeah, I don't know what this is. This is a kind of... In a few years' time, the person didn't have a bleed and he needed surgery. I'm sure this person is not doing this out of masochism or something, but just forgo forgot the severity. So it's really important to do a lot of education and awareness, I think. that's main. And also for our colleagues, the surgeons, that they should ask, you know, have you ever had major bleeding, a bleeding disorder? This awareness is really important. I next want to ask about molecular diagnostics. Is accompanying molecular diagnostics part of the initial diagnosis of mild hemophilia A? If so, why? And if not, why not? 
So I think when um, a new patient is diagnosed with uh, mild hemophilia A, it's important to do genetic diagnosis. To, uh, in other words, to identify, usually it's a missense mutation in the uh, factor A gene. And the reason why this is important, it's important for genetic counseling. If, the, if you make, we always make pedigrees uh, when we identify new patients and then we identify potential carriers and um, we offer them genetic counseling if they have a wish for children. But also from another point, uh, it's very important because it's known that specific missense mutations have an increased risk for inhibitor development. Uh, and we will be talking about that later, so I will not go into it too much now. But there is a true heterogeneity among the mutations in the factor A gene and their association with inhibitor development. So it's really important to know if a specific patient carries a missense mutation that makes him prone, him or her prone for inhibitor development. And also, I would add telling that paradoxically, nowadays... Uh, genetic analysis is much more affordable, maybe in low-income countries, than the classic, the traditional clotting assay. Because clotting assay needs experience, quality assessment. But if you have an NGS and you already have a database telling you that that given mutation has been already reported in a family with hemophilia, so that is to say that this mutation, this variant is causative of hemophilia. In a way, you could have much more chance to do diagnosis with a genetic analysis in countries where clotting assay are not done properly. Of course, then you would need to know the levels to treat the patient, but theoretically, genetic assay could be the way to, uh, in a, um, to have more diagnosis in, in those countries. Yeah, because nowadays making a genetic diagnosis is it's also cheaper, of, much cheaper than in the past, just having this uh, high through, throughput machinery, it's cheap, it's quick. Uh, and if you already know the vast majority, of course, of mutation, and you already know that a given mutation is causative, the diagnosis is there. Again, I don't want to highlight the vagaries of the U.S. healthcare system, but in your countries, do you run into any problems getting approval or payment or for reimbursement of genetic testing, because that's certainly an issue we have in the U.S., right? The a medical director of an insurance company will say to me after a baby is diagnosed, well, why do we care what his factory genotype is? It's not going to play any role in his clinical care. Now, we're learning more and more that maybe it does play a role. So we, we are able to make that argument now. We, we weren't able to make that maybe 15 years ago. But still, I run into a lot of issues getting genetic testing reimbursed. And I'm wondering if that's true in your countries as well. I have to say that in Italy, we have no problems because in our guidelines, it is clearly stated that genetic diagnosis is part of the diagnosis. So as soon as you have, and uh, this is true for hemophilia, but this is true for all inherited bleeding disorder, first of all, of course, for genetic counseling, but also for all the other implications known to be related to the genetic background inhibitors or also, you know, somehow to characterize the bleeding phenotype or many others. So I have to say that by now we, are, we have no problem with that. Yes, it's the same in the Netherlands. It's not a problem to do the genetic uh, diagnosis. Do inhibitors develop in mild hemophilia A? And if so, how significant of a problem is that? So from the INSIGHT study, we definitely learned that um, inhibitors in mild hemophilia are not so rare as we thought. And the reason is that uh, in previous studies, there were cross-sectional studies of the prevalence of inhibitors. But with the INSIGHT study, we looked for the first time, according to exposure days, what the inhibitor risk was. And we did this in a large cohort uh, of more than 2,000 patients uh, from different European centers. And then we saw that after 100 exposure days, the inhibitor risk is 13%. So 
um, this is near, well, getting near the, the incidence in um, the cumulative incidence in severe hemophilia. But what we also saw is that from the 214 different mutations that were present in our cohort, that there were only 19 associated with inhibitor development. And in some of these, if the patients had had more than 50 exposure days, the inhibitor risk grows to 39% or 42%, for instance, for the ARCH2178 cis mutation or other mutations that have been described. So it's very much determined by the mutation and also, of course, by the number of exposure days. And um, we also saw that uh, when people with uh, mild hemophilia developed an inhibitor, sometimes the inhibitor also reduced their endogenous factor level. So it interacted with their endogenous factor eight and their phenotype turned into a severe phenotype, which is of course, yeah, uh, dramatic because these people do not know how to treat themselves and well, they have a, a much more severe phenotype all of a sudden. And uh, also, we looked at mortality in inhibitor patients uh, with mild hemophilia. And we saw that uh, mortality is uh, at least five times increased compared to the non-inhibitor patients. But I must say that this mortality is not only hemophilia related. It's also, it may also be related to the underlying disease. For instance, in older patients who have oncological disease and for that they need a lot of factor eight because they are, have surgery or other interventions. And then because of the factor eight suppletion, they may develop inhibitors and then they may die from the oncological disease. So it's a more complex situation than just to say that the inhibitors cause all the mortality. But still, it's, it's quite impressive. And regarding the risk factors, um, we were able to demonstrate that like in severe hemophilia, intensive treatments and surgery are risk factors for inhibitor development. And we were not able to demonstrate the effect of products but this may also be a power issue because the number of inhibitors that we patients that we could study uh, in relation to uh, product type was limited. So it's we can actually not really draw any conclusion on that. This was uh, research done by Ming Lim at the University of Utah using the Athen data set. Looking at people with moderate and mild hemophilia was quite interesting. And she did demonstrate this excess mortality in this group. Difficult to say exactly where that mortality was coming from. Do inhibitors look any different in mild hemophilia as opposed to moderate or severe? Since there is some factor eight, endogenous factor eight, uh, even though it's mutant, the affinity for factor eight is not displayed as linear as in the severe hemophilia. So it might, ha- might happen in some my patients, you may have uh, even uh, high titer with the detectable factor eight levels or the other way around, you have very low titers, but with a very high neutralizing activity, meaning that uh, despite having less than five Bethesda units, you still need to go to bypassing agents because uh, there is no response to factor eight replacement. This is pretty much interesting uh, as we touched upon the immunology uh, which is behind this mechanism that maybe this uh, type of antibodies interacts in a different way towards the exogenous and the endogenous molecule. Immune tolerance induction has been also used in in, uh, the attempt to eradicate inhibitors but in some cases, and I also have experience to that, this was only possible also by uh, associating immunosuppressive uh, drugs, which is something that we do in acquired hemophilia. These insights are invaluable. Now let's talk about treatment for mild hemophilia and factor eight. I think from for specific medical, dental, surgical interventions, the use of DDAVP and uh, antifibrinolytics would be my first choice. Intranasal DDAVP is not currently available in the United States. IV DDAVP is available everywhere. So uh, we can manage um, pretty much every 
procedure, even from a distance with the combination of DDAVP and uh, antifibrinolytics. That said, there are some instances where I prefer to use factor eight, um, where someone is going to be having a incredibly interventional or a procedure that's known to be bloody. For example, if I had a patient who was having scoliosis surgery, um, I would manage that patient with um, factor just because I would I would have a better control of factor level. Um, we would be able to tailor exactly where we want that trough level to be, and that particular patient needs coverage for uh, you know up to a week to two weeks, something like that, where you really can't use DDAVP for that length of time. When we're using an intense amount of factor in a mild patient that maybe has a genotype that's associated with a higher risk of inhibitor development, but needs a procedure and needs a prolonged course of uh, factor eight replacement. I'll obviously get an inhibitor be tighter before uh, any procedure, and then I'll monitor it intermittently throughout the procedure and then afterwards also, uh, throughout the factor replacement and then afterwards also. If I consider major uh, surgeries, for instance, usually I start with factor eight because I would like to ensure for the first 24, 48 hours, the best hemostasis ever. And, and due to tachyphylaxis, I don't want to lose the response to DDAVP. So generally, I use factor eight just for 24, 48 hours. And then if, if I have a very good response to DDAVP, I continue alternating DDAVP and some factor eight when tachyphylaxis occur. So this is generally what I do with my patients if they respond to DDAVP. Of course, if they don't, I have no uh, alternatives other than using factor eight. I just try to mitigate the risk, uh, if this possible, by not overwhelming, you know, dosages or, you know, it's not uh, useful to go over 150%. So maybe monitoring more strictly in a way to ensure hemostasis, but do not overload the patient with, uh, with factor eight. So the goal is to prevent all morbidities, prevent joint disease, and prevent inhibitor risk. So how does that influence your approach to starting prophylaxis, factor eight prophylaxis? Or are you more likely in a mild hemophilia patient to go with emicizumab? Yes, well, uh, thank you for this question. This is really difficult, of course. Uh, fortunately, some of the mutations that carry a higher a risk of inhibitor development are associated with higher factor levels between 15 and 20. So they are not so much prone to start prophylaxis. I haven't come across a case in my pediatric population where prophylaxis was indicated in, say, uh, patients with uh, levels between 6 and 10%. But if that would associate with a high risk uh, mutation, I would be tempted to uh, be careful and not uh, expose the patient to factor concentrate and, and start profi with a mimetic. Although the effect of the mimetic is only limited. It's, it's really difficult to say until what level of endogenous factor eight a mimetic has an additional improvement in hemostasis. It's, it's a very difficult laboratory question. And uh, on the other hand, there's also some, you could also argue that it would be actually maybe a good idea to start prophylaxis. There is this immunological theory called the discontinuity theory. This states that if you give an antigen at a low dose, very regular, that it's more likely to give tolerance than when you use it only at peak treatment moments. So for that reason, you could argue that even factor eight concentrate as a prophylaxis may be an option. We just don't know. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, what counts a lot for me is the bleeding factor levels have phenotype. I would uh, decide or, on or offer prophylaxis despite having a detectable high, medium, high level. If, you, if I have a major bleed or a, a spontaneous joint bleed in someone, I already offered prophylaxis and 
my observation, very empirical, is that uh, we need more when the, the baseline level is between 6 to 10. And I do think we should open our mind nowadays and enlarge our inclusion criteria for prophylaxis knowing that those patients uh, is uh, described, they need uh, uh, orthopedic surgery, they have uh, pain, they have joint damage. So I do think that prophylaxis is needed. About the use of emicizumab, uh, data from the Haven 6 to me pertain this very small group of mild, and because the vast majority were moderate patients. I, I think that much more investigation is needed uh, on uh, the, the real uh, mechanism of action of mimetics in mild patients. We don't know enough about the interaction. So prevention is key for me. And I think it sounds like I have a very similar approach as Elena in that I won't start prophylaxis in someone with mild hemophilia factor level 6% and above without a bleeding episode, but I'll start immediately after an initial bleeding episode. We know that a single bleeding episode into a joint can cause lifelong impact. And my job as a hematologist is to prevent that as much as possible. So I'm very aggressive or maybe conservative in starting prophylaxis in a mild patients, I'd like them not to bleed at all. As we consider the questions we don't have answers to yet, Vaughn, as a patient, what's been your experience with research into the treatment and management of mild hemophilia A? So I was a guinea pig when I was younger. The NIH studied me for a while. One of the primary reasons was because my version of hemophilia, and I think this is common in the mild world, at least from people that I've talked to, my levels fluctuate. So I'm normally, my average level would be a seven. Just to put it into perspective, my daughter is 38. They still say she has hemophilia, but she really doesn't have any bleeding problems per se, at least luckily at this stage. But being a seven, I'm right on the border of moderate. And NIH studied me because one time when they did my test, I was actually in the moderate area. I think I came back like 3%. So they were like, wait, we thought this wasn't even possible. So I've definitely been a part of those kinds of things. I'm not aware of anything that's running currently, but definitely in the past, they did some studies and stuff, and I was involved with a few of them. I see. But I think there were studies going on in the Dutch European patient cohort. Is that correct? Well, there's tons of questions and unknowns in uh, knowledge gaps in mild hemophilia. And I've always been very interested in uh, inhibitor development, so this has my interest. But I think we have to learn what we can do to address and improve mental health and quality uh, of life in uh, people with mild hemophilia. Yeah, there's a, a, the translational issues like what we talked about in the beginning, the type of mutation and how this associates with the clinical phenotype. And uh, what Michael alluded to, like the other epigenetic and other influencing factors uh, on the clinical phenotype. Actually, we, the whole explanation of the clinical phenotype in mild hemophilia A is a sort of a black box. We know very little about that. So, well, these are some of the things that come to my mind, but I'm sure there's tons of other questions because research in mild hemophilia has been really lagging behind in comparison to severe hemophilia. And there's one more thing I think we should really identify the risk factors for joint damage in this group and, and address it to prevent it. Because otherwise, the patients with severe hemophilia will have better outcomes than the miles in the future. And that's not thinking, something we would like. In terms of research priorities... Through the NHF, we are currently in the midst of working on the National Research Blueprint. And what I would love to hear is what questions people with mild hemophilia have themselves and what they would like us to help them better understand for their outcomes and how to optimize their quality of life. We've touched just a little bit on 
the mental health issues and pain. But I think this, uh, the idea that uh, people with mild hemophilia do have an increased risk of chronic pain and have an increased risk of anxiety and depression. We're learning that through some of the Athens studies. We really have to dig in to that. Just before we wrap it up, let's ask the key question. Is mild hemophilia A a misnomer? I do think that we should reconsider the definition to meet individual needs we need to distinguish between different patient groups. Yes, I think it's a misnomer, just as carrier of hemophilia can be a misnomer for a woman with factor A left below 40%. I agree with Elisa that um, the, the levels from 6 to 40, it's too heterogeneous, too broad category. And I think we, yeah, it's time um, to reconsider the definition and the classification. Yes, given the symptoms, difficulties in the diagnosis and treatment, mild hemophilia A is indeed a misnomer. Today, Vaughn shared his experience of living with mild hemophilia A, both as a child and now as an adult. The hematologists shared their insights into the biology of factor VIII, the symptoms that women may face, and the management of the disease. At the beginning of the episode, we started with Cecilia's mom and her disbelief in Cecilia's diagnosis, mild hemophilia A. Her doctor and her care team let her know that she is not alone in managing this disease. They provided her with the necessary information and the support she needed. And now Cecilia is back to her middle school. Good luck in the fall, Cecilia. That's a wrap on this episode of the Global Hemophilia Report. Thank you to our esteemed panel and advisors and a special thanks to senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly. Thank you to the production and post-production team and thanks to Sanofi, our featured advertiser, for making this program possible. Visit globalhemophiliareport.com for more and subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and until next time. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.